Welcome back to the Crossroad Podcast. We're going to continue our season talking about how to build culture within an organization. I was reminded recently about the way that I used to think about organizations when I was a teenager. You know, I would think of, I would hear the word organization and think of a big business or a big institution like the government or something like that. And it always felt like something that was much bigger and further out and very external to who I am and what I was really doing. And and if I had to participate in them, it was this kind of unholy alliance where we were both sort of parasites taking from each other. It wasn't until I was in my 20s and my 30s that I started to understand the real value of organizations. And so the reason I bring that up is because we've spent four episodes really building a foundation upon which we're going to start setting up walls and erecting some structures uh, to help give you an idea of what it looks like to build culture. But one of the things I want to hammer home as we get started in, in this fifth episode is that you're an essential builder of culture. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO or if you're a new hire, low-level, brand new to the organization. If you are a part of the organization, you are a significant contributor to the culture of that organization. Because at the end of the day, an organization is defined as the shared vision of all of the participants. And so as a participant, you bring that weight of responsibility and ownership, not just to the vision, but to the structures that are supposed to feed that vision and supposed to supposed to lead all of us into the kind of mission that we're chasing. And so a lot of times we talk about culture and we think that's the responsibility of the CEO, that's the responsibility of the top leaders, and they do bear uh, a higher, maybe a higher proportion of the weight, um, but that doesn't excuse the rest of us, all of us, from having a say in what kind of organization we're a part of. So as we go through these things and we talk about these things, I encourage you to really think about what can I do in my current capacity to help to contribute to this because I guarantee that there's something, there are things, significant things that you can do to help make the kind of culture that your organization needs uh, more clear and more of a reality. So that being said, we've a quick recap. We've talked about the three different elements that make up an organization. The first is that shared purpose that I just mentioned. The second are the structures that we build uh, to serve that purpose. And the third are the people that we hire or that we bring into the organization um, to fill those the roles and to enact the structures that we've put in place. So we mentioned in episode four that the key to building culture is being intentional about the structures that we build, the systems that we put in place. Because the structures that we build connect the people to the purpose. And so if we build them effectively and if we communicate their goal and, and the reason that they exist constantly, consistently, and truly, we will go a long way towards building a healthy and sustainable culture. One of those key structures that we build are mental models. So your organization, every organization, have a myriad mental models of ways that we conceive of everything from conflict to how we set goals, to how we communicate. Here's a quick example of that. We have mental models around communication. 
So if you were to come and follow me for a day at the King's College where Kylie and I work, you would hear me use a lot of acronyms like PPE and, and those sorts of things that wouldn't make a lot of sense to you if you weren't there. Because we have these mental models where everybody understands what's being communicated. PPE stands for politics, philosophy, and economics. And so we create these mental models of uh, communication. They're ways that we conceive of communicating with one another. And each organization has their special way of doing that. And as I mentioned, we do this in a bunch of different arenas. We have mental models around how we deal with conflict. Um, so let's take it out of the business corporate setting and put it into like a family organization. A family organization might have mental models around conflict that suggest that being the loudest and the angriest is the way that you win and the way that you get your way. So when a conflict arises, people start screaming. One of the things that's interesting is watching kids like completely lose their minds or, or lose their temper and parents just kind of match it, try to match the level of, of anger uh, and even to go just a little bit above it to, you know, kind of show the kid who's boss. And what's interesting about that is that you, you may get your way because you're more powerful than they are. But what you're doing is you're also teaching them that this is how you deal with conflict. You be big and, and angry and you yell the loudest. And so they're going to continue yelling with you because they're going to keep fighting to win. And they're going to take that into the social dynamics, the relationships that they have. They're going to probably end up yelling at teachers. They're going to, you know, yell at significant others when they become adults because they have this mental model that they're acting out of. Of This is how we deal with conflict. Another example of a mental model is uh, maybe how you set goals, the way you structure, you know, strategies and pursuing your day-to-day -day goals and and the way that you have accountability with your direct report. And so all of these things are structures, they're mental models that helped not only move us effectively in terms of creating whatever product we might be creating, but also pursuing whatever purpose we might be pursuing. And therein, we create the structures that are really the, the heart of culture. So what we want to talk about in this episode is a specific mental model uh, and how we can think about that, obviously, but also how we can communicate it so that we can establish a structure within our, our culture. So the mental model we're going to talk about today is how does your organization react to difficulty? And that we're throwing a the word difficulty, we're putting a lot of things underneath that umbrella. It could include failure. What do you do when somebody in your organization falls short of a goal or an expectation? Because the way that we do that creates a mental model. People expect behavior, they expect attitude, they expect reactions. So how do you react when somebody fails? How do you react when your organization faces a challenge? When something comes up and there is a, a difficulty, uh, there, is, there is a challenge or an obstacle, what is the attitude, what is the mental model that you communicate heading into that? Uh, which is, of course, connected to the way you think about and the way you treat failure. Because if you treat failure really harshly and there's blame shifting and, and that's kind of the way that your organization approaches failure, then you're going to approach challenge and obstacle with a lot of slowness, a lot of care, a lot of hesitation, because you don't want to be the one that gets blamed for, for things if, if it goes awry. So difficulty in all of its different aspects is inevitable within an organization. 
There's no organization, there's no group of people pursuing a purpose that aren't going to encounter some challenges. You know, we love going to the movie theater. We love sitting there and watching these stories of, you know, Frodo taking the ring to Mount Doom or whatever. Uh, We love watching Marvel characters go through the the arcs that they go through. Uh, Because in some sense, it's obviously detached from us. The lights are real down low and this is happening very external to us. Uh, So the consequences are far removed, but they also, it feels very real to us. This is what our life is. We are pursuing a purpose and facing challenges and hoping to overcome them. And we see that literally projected onto the screens in front of us. And imagine if you were trying to watch a movie or read a book where none of the characters faced any difficulty, where there's no challenge to overcome, no obstacle that they had to navigate. You would think it was a pretty terrible movie. You would get pretty bored. Just be like people st- looking at each other smiling the whole the whole time for two hours. or I don't know. You'd probably get up and leave if you were trying to watch a movie where characters didn't encounter any difficulty. And yet we are trying to create this dynamic in our own lives uh, where difficulty is eradicated, where obstacles are removed. And it's just not practical. It's just not realistic. Challenges are always going to be there. And so the choice that we have, we have two options in the face of inevitable difficulty. And the options are to either quit or to persevere. And so what we want to talk about today is when is it appropriate to quit? When is it appropriate to persevere? And how do you communicate that to all members of your organization? If you'll remember, we talked in episode four about the path of least resistance. So when difficulty arrives, when challenge shows itself in your organization, is the path of least resistance to quit, whether that's literally to like get out or if it's to like, you know, shut down and and stop trying as hard as you might otherwise, or is the path of least resistance to push forward, to encounter it boldly and with confidence? And how do you create uh, either of those paths of least resistance? How do you structure your organization to be prepared for that? So to begin with, what we're going to talk about is the Project Mood Curve. And you can go to thecrossroad.net and see some more resources about the Project Mood Curve, where it came from, it's not our invention, how it got started, what are the uh, kind of a fuller discussion of it than what we're going to get into here. But for the purposes of this episode, we're talking talking about the project mood curve as the inevitable trajectory of every human endeavor. So everything that you experience goes through the project mood curve. Every relationship that you've ever been in or are in, every organization that you're a part of as a as a whole just generally speaking goes through the project mood curve. Plus every specific project you have within your organization goes through the project mood curve. And so what we want to do is help to create a mental model, a structure that can communicates the the inevitability and the value and the potential of the project mood curve and sets an expectation for how your organization is, is going to encounter and traverse the project mood curve effectively. So the project mood curve essentially happens in three different stages. The first is kind of the honeymoon phase. So we have a lot of options, especially in today's world. There's a lot of options for who to get into a relationship with. There's a lot of options for where to work, for where to spend your free time, for what projects to invest in. We pick the ones we pick because we think they're going to turn out well. We pick the endeavors that we get into because we have a high hope 
that it's going to work out. Nobody gets into something just like immediately expecting it to be a disaster. And so the honeymoon phase is the initial experience of that hope. We kind of make it in our minds what we want it to be, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at the very beginning. Uh, so in a marriage, you might experience this, and that's where we usually use the, the, the phrase honeymoon phase. You'll get married. You'll go on your honeymoon. It's exciting. You're thrilled this is happening for you. You're in an endeavor that you have high hope and high expectation for. And so generally speaking, when we're starting something out, we're feeling excited about it. Our expectations are high. The second phase is what I'm calling in this episode the despair phase. And so the despair phase happens after the honeymoon phase. It happens when the reality doesn't quite keep par with our expectations. And so after you've come home from the honeymoon and your new marriage is starting to get a few days and weeks behind it, you start to notice that this beautiful, wonderful human being that you have said vows to uh, has some quirks, you know, has some weird things about them, maybe that are frustrating or annoying to you. And so we are we start to experience this sense of difficulty, this sense of challenge of obstacle. When you're working on a project, things might be going great, but then you're going to hit like an un- unexpected snag. Or even if you hit an expected snag, it, it might feel differently than you thought it would. It might not be as easy to overcome as you had hoped. So every endeavor has this, this, this area of despair, this second phase of the project mood curve. The only thing that varies is how deep that despair goes, uh, how, how hard it hits you. And just being aware that it's inevitable can help to lessen the depth of the pit of despair, to lessen the impact that that, that phase has on you because it's not as much of a surprise. And that's largely what this episode is about. It's about creating a structure to be ready for these challenges so that when they come, you are still grounded in your purpose as an organization rather than freaking out because things aren't working out perfectly. We'll talk more about the despair phase and and how to react to it as we go along. But the third phase on the other side of despair is the thriving phase. What's very interesting about this is if you imagine the project mood curve, you can go to the crossroad.net to look at it if you're a visual person, but it's basically like a U shape where the right side is, uh, you know, slightly higher than uh, the left side. Um, And the reason for that is that our thriving is actually better than our honeymoon phase. So what that means is Kylie and I have been married for several years now. And now that we have been through some things and we've navigated one another's quirks and we've expressed our annoyances and we've gone through some of the challenges, our marriage actually operates at a higher level because that honeymoon phase is very superficial. It's very imaginative. It's very um, hopeful in the sense of not based in any sort of reality, just what we desire and what we want. On the other side of the despair phase, we have the potential to bind together and to grow in intimacy. And that creates a real practical thriving that creates a real foundation for intimacy, for togetherness. And so if we persevere through the despair phase, we get to something that's better than what we imagined. It's different than what we first imagined. But in, in all, by all definitions of success and thriving, it's better than the superficial honeymoon phase. So if we're talking about quitting, where do people quit? As you might imagine, people quit 
in the despair phase. People can quit anywhere, but but generally speaking, the despair phase is, is where people are most likely to quit. So why do people quit? Um, people quit because the endeavor is difficult, because they're facing these challenges. So this is the heart of what you want to be intentional about when you're building structure is how are we going to think about the difficulty, the despair phase? Are we going to see it as a failure in and of itself and quit in the midst of it? Or are we going to see it as an opportunity for us to learn, to grow, to develop that intimacy together and to persevere towards our purpose and towards that thriving that we all really want out of the organizations that we're a part of and the life that we are living. Because here's the the challenging thing about quitting. A lot of us in today's world are trying to shortcut the despair phase. We're trying to get from honeymoon to thriving and just get through the nuisance of, of having to go through the difficulty and challenge. And because there are so many options out there, when our endeavor becomes challenging, we think, okay, this isn't that thing. We're going to quit and go find something else. We're going to go continue our pursuit of that shortcut. This is an exercise in futility because obviously every time you quit one endeavor, your only real option is to start a new one. And because the despair phase is inevitable, what happens so often as individuals is we get in these cycles of quitting and starting something new and quitting and starting something new. You know, and this is not the only reason, but one of the top reasons for infidelity within a marriage. When things get difficulty, we start craving that honeymoon experience, that feel of excitement and newness and and all of that. And, and, you know, we're having challenges at home. And so we start to think, I'm just going to get out of this and go back to that honeymoon phase and, and start something anew. But that just complicates matters, which is something much deeper than we have time to get into right now. But when we reach this despair, quitting isn't the only option. The other option is perseverance. The Bible talks about how perseverance produces character and character produces hope, which could be a synonym for thriving in terms of the individual spiritual journey. And we've talked about how culture is the character of an organization. So to adapt that verse to organizations, you might say that perseverance produces culture. How we persevere, what we're willing to persevere through, and why we're willing to persevere helps to clarify what our values are, what really matters, and what is our unified purpose. Because there is only one reason that people persevere through despair, and that is to achieve a purpose that they believe is greater than the struggle that they're going through. So in a real practical way, our despair, our challenges, our difficulties are proving ground for whether or not we are really invested in the thing that we're pursuing. And so that being said, there's a real truth to sometimes it's appropriate to quit. And the appropriate time to quit is when you realize that the vision that you are chasing is not really worth the despair that you're going through. Having said that, when you're in the midst of the despair, it's almost always going to feel like the vision you're going towards isn't worth the despair that you're experiencing. What we want to do to build an effective culture is create a mental model that allows us in the pit of despair to really ask ourselves that question. Are we continuing to pursue the vision, the shared vision of our organization? And is what we're going through worth that? And not only is it worth it, 
But is what we're going through, is the difficulty, is the challenge, is the uncertainty an opportunity to participate in the vision that we're heading towards? And let me give you just three quick ways of how navigating through despair is actually an opportunity. I think a lot of times we talk about going through challenges as this thing where you just kind of have to like grin and bear it and get to thriving, get to the other side of it. But the truth is there's some real beauty and real magic in the difficulty. And we've got to have mental models that show us that, hey, this is a reality But within that reality, there is an opportunity. So here are three quick ways. The first is the pit of despair develops intimacy. Uh, A few weeks after, a few months, a couple months after Kylie and I first got married, we got a call that her dad passed away. So instantly our marriage is kind of put in this like difficult situation. We were living in Texas at the time and Kylie's dad passed away up in Canada where all her family is. So we had to like scramble to figure out how to get her there, if it made any sense for me to get there, not to mention just the emotional toll of how are we as newlyweds going to navigate this tragedy together? Am I going to be as understanding as I can be? Is she going to be willing and free to express herself and and say what she needs to say and, and do what she needs to do? And how are we going to deal with it together? And so that difficulty really asks some hard questions of us. But in answering those questions, intimacy developed. This is how trust develops. And that just grows a relationship that grows an organization. None of you know somebody, it could be your parents, your friends. There's nobody in your life that you can say, I really absolutely love and trust this person that you haven't been through some messy things with. You haven't, they've, they've seen you cry. You've maybe yelled at them and they've yelled at you. You've been through these moments of challenge. Intimacy develops in the pit of despair. Therefore, when you find yourself in that pit of despair, one of the great questions we can ask each other is, what is the opportunity here? How can we come alongside each other? When Kylie and I are, are having these, uh, you know, spats that you have in a marriage, we're arguing, you know, I don't feel heard. She doesn't feel heard. She feels like I'm trying to fight for my way. I feel like she's trying to fight for her way. Uh, These moments of of real tension. We often will kind of stop one of the two of us and remind ourselves like, hey, I'm trying. And I just want to remind you like we're on the same team. And that phrase, we're on the same team, has been so powerful for us in the midst of these challenges and these pits of despairs in our marriage. Because it reminds us like, hey, when we're in this, This isn't a me versus you thing. This is an us thing. And so how can we bind ourselves together more effectively in these tense moments, in these moments of challenge and of difficulty? So intimacy develops in the pit of despair. That's a real opportunity. The second is that we can learn a lot. You know, failure is not something any of us should strive for. But when we do fail, it's a it's a real opportunity for us to learn. You might Failure is sometimes an indication that your limits have been reached. You know now where you can't go past. You know the boundary that you need to set in place and establish moving forward. And that's a learning opportunity. That's something you take into your next endeavor and to the next, uh, the next thing that you do. Uh, and there are a, th- a thousand ways that that is true. And that that's the reason that difficulty is such a part of our lives and such a valuable part of it is because it helps us to learn. So when we need to we need to do what we can to create a structure, a mental model that sets our organization up to see 
both intimacy and learning as opportunities in the pit of despair. So that when we're in these difficult moments, we ask ourselves, what are we learning? How do we bind together? Rather than uh, who's to blame, how do we criticize one another, where is the fault in this, and how, do you, as, how does each participant distance themselves from it? The third opportunity in the pit of despair, as I have mentioned a little bit already, is going through it is the only way to really achieve your purpose. Uh, and not just that, but when we talk about a transcendent purpose, going through it is actually a way to achieve your purpose. So the only way to get to your purpose is through the mood curve. The only way to get to that shared sense of purpose that your organization is created for is to navigate all three phases of this mood curve with truth and with effectiveness. So all of that to say that the, the mood curve, the project mood curve is a reality. It's just the truth. It's the way things operate and the way our endeavors are inevitably gonna play out. So we wanna spend the rest of our time a few minutes here talking about, okay, with all that in mind, how do we establish mental models of perseverance within our organization? The first is to communicate the reality of the mood curve often. And not just when people are in the pit of despair, because it's sometimes very hard to hear anything when you're in the pit of despair. Those, those difficult circumstances feel all-encompassing. So not just when you're in the pit of despair, but always. We would, when we were traveling the world, Kylie and I would, uh, would draw the mood curve and ask our participants to just like map out where they were, to just make a little X or a little dot where they were on the mood curve. And we didn't just do that when people were in the pit of despair. We did it often, just randomly, as a conversation starter, if nothing else, to help people see that this is a reality and to set expectations that this entire mood curve is part of the trajectory of our organization. And we're going to hit some part, we're going to hit every part of it eventually. So where are we now? And where are we now in the context of this curve? And how can we take where we are now in context to see where we've been and where we are going? The second thing, and probably the most important thing for establishing a healthy structure, a healthy mental model, is to be intentional about the ways that we react to failure. There's kind of two general approaches to this, right? When you fail, you can either say, all right, well, we are learning, we're growing, we're pursuing our vision, and, and that's hard. And sometimes we're going to fall a little bit short, but this isn't the end. This is just the setback. So how do we learn from this? How do we get ourselves back on the horse and continue to move forward? The other reaction is to feel as though failure is the end game. And as soon as we encounter failure, it's all over. And what we often do in organizations is we find somebody to blame. We find somebody to make the scapegoat. So we put all of the end failure on that person. We might fire them. We might shun them. We might kick them out in any way, shape, or, or form that is appropriate for whatever organization we're in so that the rest of us can survive and, and can regroup and can start a new project from the beginning. Well, if we do this, we create this structure. We create a culture. We create a culture that's going to be fear-based. It's going to be worried that I'm going to be that scapegoat. I'm going to be that person that's the brunt of the blame. I'm going to be the one that's sacrificed uh, in order for the illusion of effectiveness and togetherness to continue. And that's going to really permeate your culture. It's going to inform the character of your organization. If, on the other hand, we can say, look, no, none of us want to fail, 
but we can say we're trying to we're trying to make an omelet and that's going to require some broken eggs. We've got to fall short and we've got uh, to push ourselves in order to get where we eventually want to go. You know, an, an organization that never fails is an organization that's not trying hard enough. And so what we want to do is make sure that we are careful and intentional about the way that we react to failure and the way that we communicate failure. And again, this isn't something that you have to wait until somebody fails to do. You can communicate this in your training, your onboarding with new employees. You can communicate it in talks with your son or daughter around the dinner table or in their room. But one of the things we have to be careful about when we do it before failure is to be consistent with that messaging when they do fail. Because a lot of times we will tell people in our organization, you're not going to get blamed. Uh, We are open to mistakes and we want you to learn from it. But then if somebody makes a mistake and you jump all over them and you throw them out of the organization, then the people that are watching uh, as well, obviously, as the one who got booted, are going to see something that is inconsistent with what you had said. And what you do is going to speak much more powerfully than what you said. So we want to have a consistent messaging about failure and about falling short and what that means. The reality for all of this, again, is to constantly come back to the purpose and elevate the vision. So that's my third recommendation for how to establish a mental model of perseverance. Reframe everything around the purpose. What happens in in all of our lives, certainly in all of our organizations, is we become so circumstantial. We become so hyper-focused on what we are experiencing today that we forget the broader transcendent purpose for which we're gathered, for which we're created. And so one of the ways that we can really put failure in context is to continue to focus on the ultimate purpose and elevate that vision in all of our communication. Because what it does then is it strips away the power or the fear of failure as the ultimate thing and reminds us that pursuing the purpose is the ultimate thing. So failure is just a roadblock, an unfortunate one, but a roadblock on the way towards that ultimate vision. But your organizations, your cultures are going to forget that so easily if they aren't constantly reminded of it. What gets attention in our organizations, just like what gets attention in our lives, gets repeated. So we have to pay attention to the vision. We have to recast everything in its light. And so as we talk about how to to build culture with every mental model that you might have, whether it's around conflict, around emotions, or around perseverance, all of them have to center on the vision. That has to be the real shining light of the structure of the mental model. Otherwise, it's going to take on a life of its own and it's going to drift off into a different direction and become this real split vision where sometimes we talk about the ultimate purpose and sometimes we talk about this sort of side purpose, which is who to blame, where to point fingers, how to desperately hide a mistake or overcorrect a mistake. We've got to bring our mistakes, our failures, our mindset around obstacles in alignment with our ultimate purpose, our ultimate goal, our ultimate vision in an organization. So this is a mental model, an example of a mental model for quitting and perseverance and how we view difficulty. How does your organization think about these things? What are the images and the language that you use to communicate the perspective, the heart, 
the idea of difficulty within your organization. Because the way that you do that is going to go a long way in establishing the kind of culture that you have. It's going to go a long way in communicating the values of your organization and what you expect out of people and what you want for them. As we continue through the season, we'll talk about some more mental models and some more structures that we can put in place. But I encourage you to start here. Start with a in-depth assessment of how your organization thinks about and treats failure, difficulty, challenge, obstacle. What are the messages that people in your organization are getting? What are the things you are saying? What are the things you are doing? And how can you be intentional about either breaking down and rebuilding those, or if you're starting a new organization, building them from the ground up in a way that's in alignment with your purpose and treats the project mood curve for the reality that it is and the opportunity that it is to get yourself and your organization to that vision where you ultimately want to be. Thank you for listening to The Crossroad Podcast. The world is out there waiting for you to become the best leader you can possibly be. We hope our conversations have helped. For more, please visit our website, thecrossroad.net.